All right. So the first chunk of text, chapter 8, is about the right use of liberty, not using real liberties or perceived liberties to cause your brother to stumble. Uh, Verse 1. Now concerning things offered to idols, right, this is a change of subject. Chapter 7 was talking about marriage. Chapter 8 moves on to things, concern, things that are offered to idols. We know so things offered to idols, that is a phrase, by the way, that Paul would obviously have had in mind from back with Acts 15. Uh, Acts 15, he was at that council, and he helped to deliver the decree of that council. So things dedicated to idols, uh, things offered to idols, is a phrase that he is very familiar with. He participated in that ecumenical council. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. So here's a general tendency of knowledge. Knowledge is the means by which we are sanctified, and it is also the means by which we are humbled. But there's also this danger. When you get knowledge, there's a tendency to think that you're better than other people. When you get knowledge, there's a tendency to be arrogant. And the reason is, we sometimes think the reason we have knowledge is because we are better than other people. We think we're smarter than other people. Well, we know that we receive this revelation from God. And we know that even with the revelation, the pounding of the ears, we would never believe it if it weren't for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And so Calvinism is the thing that keeps you from arrogance. You have to remember the doctrine that we receive our knowledge from God by His sovereign dispensation, both in terms of the objective revelation and in terms of the illuminating work of the Spirit. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up as a danger of arrogance from knowledge, but love edifies. Now, you can't edify anybody if you don't have any knowledge. You can't edify anybody if you don't have any knowledge. The point is, Paul's reminding us, not only is knowledge the good, but also we need to know how to use it. We use it to teach other people, and we teach other people with it in such a way as to encourage peace. What we do is we seek to edify by caring for other people's weaknesses. Verse 2, And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. This is the way this gets read sometimes. If you think you know anything, then you don't know anything. That's how some people read this. That's not what it's saying. That's not what it's saying. It doesn't mean that. What it's saying is, if anyone thinks he knows anything, great. But remember this, you don't know everything. You think you know something, that's good. You don't know everything. You don't know as you ought to know. You don't have the full extent of knowledge. You don't have the fullness of the revealed truth. The pleroma is not in you. You have not reached the perfection of the fullness of the maturity that we are to reach in Christ. So check yourself. Therefore, verse 4, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. Now here's something. Do you think it's possible that he's about to show an example of somebody knowing some truth but not applying it fully? Is it possible, having set it up that way, that he's about to do that across three chapters? Let's see. 
Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. Great. The idol's not really a god, right? Not really a god. That there are no, uh, there's no other god but one. Idol's not God because there's only one God. And he doesn't dress like that. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. So he's pointing out here a bunch of true things. But let's stop for just a second. He's leaving out a bunch of key truths. And he's going to spend most of chapter 10 pointing them out. Let's pause and think about the key ones for just a second. Jump forward to chapter 10, verse 18. Chapter 10, verse 18. I think I've got that on page 6. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? There's something that's been forgotten. When you eat a sacrifice, you partake in the altar. What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? In other words, am I contradicting the point I made back in chapter 8? Because we just agreed that idols are nothing, right? I mean, not literally nothing. We all agree they're statues, right? Is that... So Paul wasn't saying they're nothing. We all agree they're human ideas, right? Paul wasn't saying they're nothing. What was he saying? He's saying they're not God. That's what he means by nothing. He explains himself back there. Okay, fine. The idols aren't God. They're not really God. Got it. Nailed it. Deal. Absolutely. Shake hands on it. But, what am I saying? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. He's showing us an example of having truths but not having all of the truths. You have knowledge. Great. Don't act arrogantly on that knowledge. Carefully consider that you need the fullness of the revelation. If you eat food dedicated to idols, you're eating food dedicated to demons. If you eat food dedicated to demons, you partake in the altar to demons. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? That's a reference back to the sarcasm he's had earlier, by the way. Go back to the first page. You remember in 1 Corinthians 4, he talked about, you're already full, you're already rich, you've reigned as kings without us, and indeed, I could wish you did reign that we also might reign with you. Verse 10 was, We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We're weak, but you're strong. You're distinguished, but we are dishonored. Right? 
He's calling them strong, and air quotes. You think we're weak? The apostles, we're the ones that are weak. His point is that they are arrogant, and he is brash with them because of their arrogance. That tone continues. When we look at the idea of the weaker brother here, the weaker brother here, frankly, is sarcastic. Because he makes very plain in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that we just read, he makes it very plain in verses 18 to 22 that it's not okay to participate in the altar of demons. And it's not okay, therefore, to participate in eating food sacrificed to idols because it's food sacrificed to demons. So does Acts 15. So does Revelation chapter 2. So does Leviticus. These are all things that are taught throughout the whole of Scripture. But these people think, because they have knowledge that idols aren't real gods, therefore they can eat food dedicated to idols. Verse 7, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge. Not everybody realizes that the demons are false gods. Not everybody realizes that the idols are demons. Not everybody realizes that when you eat a food dedicated to idols, that you're not worshiping the idol. You see all the ways that that's sin? However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol. Unbelievers that are pagans. And their conscience being weak is defiled. Notice the weak one here is the one who, even until now, eats it as a thing offered to an idol. Consciousness of the idol, eating it as a thing dedicated to the idol. That's somebody who's intentionally participating in the sacrifice. Pagans. Page 2. Verse 8. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. Therefore what? Therefore I can eat anything I want without regard to context? No. You can say the same thing about the Lord's Supper. There is no virtue in the bread or wine itself. There's no strength in it. It's not the bread or wine. It's the fact that it's been set apart by word and prayer. And so it's the strength of the Lord and not the strength of the bread or wine. It's not the eating and drinking. Food does not commend us to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But let's take this for a second. You could take that in the absolute sense. Does that mean there's no benefit to eating the bread or drinking the wine at the Lord's Supper? Is that what Paul is saying? Should we be Quakers? No sacraments. No benefit, therefore no sacraments. Verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Oh, sorry, I think I skipped verse 9. Verse 9. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. Okay, the word liberty here, I want you should understand it as having quotes around it. This is not an actual liberty. Paul expressly and plainly forbids eating food dedicated to idols. And this, here's the example, by the way. Let's, 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 let's look at this for just a second. 
Beware, lest someone, lest somehow this liberty of you become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, this, this is not somebody eating something that was dedicated to an idol at some point, went to the marketplace, went to somebody's house, and then is being eaten. This is Paul saying, you know, if you go to the temple of this false god and eat the food in the temple of that false god, somebody might see you. His point is not that you have the liberty to do that for real. He's not saying that. He's not saying you have the right to go to Jupiter's temple and eat a steak that was just sacrificed to him. What he's saying is, oh, you think you have this liberty. That's cute. So when you do this in the temple of this false god, do you think that it might give the appearance of sin to somebody? Do you see the level, the dripping sarcasm, the look how dumb you are tone that Paul is giving to the church at Corinth? That's what he's doing here. We are not used to this. We think sarcasm is not holy. And Paul is not holy, and neither is the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's not sarcastic with everybody, and neither is Jesus sarcastic with everybody. They do it with people who are obstinate offenders. This is the same church that wouldn't discipline incest, right? And so he says, what are you doing? What he's doing is he's starting to rebuke and censure in pretty harsh ways, grabbing hold. It's kind of like Nehemiah grabbing people by the beard. That's what Paul is doing via letter. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge, you see the, the sarcasm in the word knowledge there? Now, does that make sense? Everybody sees you who have knowledge. You, wise one, eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? Right? Are they weak? Or are they just wrong if they're idolaters? And if they're brothers, are they weak or are they right? Verse 11. And because of your knowledge, shall the weaker brother, here now we have the believer plainly laid out, perish for whom Christ died? Why would they perish? They'd they'd perish because they would eat food dedicated to idols. And you know what happens to people who eat food dedicated to idols? Well, if you read Numbers, they die. If you read 1 Corinthians, they die. That's what his point is. He's going to talk about people dying for eating covenant meals wrongly. That's what he's going to talk about. So the perishing is dying from a curse, from eating wrong meals covenantally, or eating covenantal meals wrongly. And because of your knowledge, shall the weaker brother perish for whom Christ died? There's also the idea here of of perishing in the sense of acting without faith. You're encouraging the action without faith. And that's because there's no objective basis to act with faith in this. So let's look at this. Leviticus 17, verses 1 through 9, I have it posted there. But in short, what it says is, don't sacrifice anything except the sacrifices that God requires. And then you go down to verse 7, it says, they shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons after whom they have played the harlot. This shall be a statute forever for, for them throughout their generations. 
Also, you shall say to them, Whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from among his people. So you see where Paul gets the idea that you can't eat at the Lord's table if you also eat at a demon's table? You get cut off. You get excommunicated. You're removed from the church. So, was this just some Old Testament ceremonial law? Well, Acts 15.20, James, the moderator of the assembly at Jerusalem, makes a motion in which he presents this in the motion as what should be in the decree. No food dedicated to idols. Verse 28 captures this in the decree of the canon of the council. No food dedicated to idols. Nothing dedicated to idols. This gets repeated in chapter 21, verse 25, in reference to the canon of the council. Okay, so three times in Acts. Then, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 18 to 22, which we just read, which explicitly forbids eating things coming from an idol's altar. Revelation 2.14, the church at Pergamos is rebuked for eating food dedicated to idols. Revelation 2.20, the church of Thyatira is rebuked for eating food dedicated to idols. Does this seem like a thing to make Jews feel good? Or does this seem like something that was commanded to Gentiles in Leviticus, is commanded to the whole church in Acts 15, twice, is repeated in Acts 21, and churches are rebuked for doing it twice in two separate letters in Revelation chapter 2. Verse 12. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, the weak there is sarcastic, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So, even if this were a real liberty, guess what you should do? You should not do it for the sake of your brother's conscience. But it's not a real liberty. And so it's inexcusable twice. Chapter 9, Paul is going to talk now about the fact that he has an actual liberty to eat because of his work as an apostle. And he says, you know what I do? I don't take my right. I don't use my liberty because I'm trying to be concerned about people's consciences and to not make them stumble and to be careful to not be a burden on them for the sake of the gospel. And he's specifically rebuking the Corinthians, by the way, because they're the ones who didn't pay him and they didn't even try. And then when he comes back later on and the Macedonians who were poor were paying to make him so he could do ministry and the, and the Corinthians aren't even willing to give him the money they promised to help the church in Jerusalem, he's trying to push them to keep their promise. And so there is some concern here about them worshiping their bellies. So, verse 1, chapter 9, verse 1. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Right? Isn't that one of the qualifications of an apostle? Are you not my work in the Lord? Right? Don't, don't I? So I'm, I'm a legitimate officer, right? I'm, I'm the apostle Paul. In addition to that, also, haven't I done work not only in general, but for you specifically? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you. So, okay, fine. You don't think I'm an apostle? Am I at least a pastor that you owe? For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. They are a symbol to others to see. 
Verse 3, My defense to those who examine me is this, Do we have no right to eat and drink, no liberty to eat and drink? See how he's comparing his liberty to eat and drink for his work versus the liberty that's supposed, it's a pretended liberty, to eat food that's sacrificed to idols. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no liberty to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife? Right? Not only do you have to provide for me, but guess what? You have to provide enough for me that I could bring along a wife. She's not married. Not married at that time. But look, I'm not, I'm not putting a burden on you for myself, much less the maximum I could have, which is to take a wife and then have you provide for her too. Right? That's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm not only not using the right at all, I'm not, I'm not using it to the maximum extent, but I'm not using it at all. Do we have no right to take along a believing wife? As do also the other apostles. So the other apostles are bringing their wives along. The brothers of the Lord, multiple brothers are apparently believers now, not just James. And they are taking their wives when they go church planting. And Cephas, first celibate pope, taking a wife along, making people pay for her, for shame. Verse 6, Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working. Now, we all know Paul worked real hard. Barnabas worked real hard. They worked real hard in the ministry. The point is, the refraining from tent making that he did to make money while also doing a full-time ministry job, right? That's what he's talking about. Are we the only ones who don't get to do a second job? Is that, is that the deal here, Barnabas and me? Just us. All right. Whoever goes to war on his own expense... Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat of its fruit? Who tends a flock and doesn't drink the milk of the flock? Right, he's, he's arguing he's an officer. He's arguing he's an apostle. He's arguing from the fact that the other apostles all do this. He's arguing from the fact that it's the universal apostolic deposit tradition given to the church. That they are owed pay for their work. He goes from the analogy of service in war to his service in his spiritual warfare. He goes from the analogy of tending a vineyard to the idea that he should eat of the fruit. He goes from the analogy of the flock to taking the milk of the flock. Right? These are all things he's arguing and saying each of these things by themselves proves the point. I love the Apostle Paul because he engages in overkill. In case we miss the point, he's kind enough to tell it to us about seven or eight times. So by the eighth one, we probably get it. So his point is, he has a legitimate, real, for realsies, real thing, actual right to get food and eat it. In contrast to this totally fake, contrary to the law, absurd, nonsense, made up right to eat food dedicated to idols. And he gives up his actual, real right because he doesn't want to cause people to stumble, but these people won't give up their pretended right, even though it's causing people to stumble. Verse 8. Do I say these things as a mere man? It's just these arguments, this, this set of obvious, clear, great arguments that abundantly prove the point. Am I just saying this as a mere man? No, look, overkill. 
Or does not the law say the same also? Notice this, by the way. He's about to quote the ceremonial law to prove something that continues to be binding in the gospel era. What? How do we do this? We've we got to deal with this. This is an argument, and it either holds or it doesn't hold. If it doesn't hold, we have the Apostle Paul inspired making a bad argument. Problem. If it does hold, which my bet is that it does, because he's the Apostle Paul, and it's inspired, and it's in the Scriptures, then we have to figure out what it is that the argument is. Okay, so let's, let's, think, let's think about this. Verse 8. Do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. That is a ceremonial holiness law. We are not bound to that law. But what he does is this. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt. This is written. That he who plows should plow in hope. And he who threshes in hope should be partaker of this hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? So, remember earlier on he talked about how one plants, another waters, right? It's like he plans ahead in the book of 1 Corinthians with his analogies and plans to revisit them. It happens over and over again, by the way just like we see from chapter 8 through chapter 10. He does this over and over again. The self-referential back. So is this mere human authority? The answer is no. He's appealing to the law. He doesn't assert a doctrine that he's inventing. This comes from the ceremonial law. It's a moral element in the ceremonial law. It's not a civil law. There's no penalty. It's not about the civil government. It's not a moral law. It's not a moral law. However, there's some abiding obligation in terms of the application of the principle, the substance. The the type was a shadow, and there's some sort of substance that's being taught. The muzzling knot of the ox that treads out the grain goes from the lesser to the greater. It goes from the animal to the man. He who plows, sows, threshes should plow, sow, and thresh in hope. There should be an expectation that work brings the fruit of labor. That's the principle. You see how that applies to us in terms of our general work as Christians. We should work with hope. We should have the doxological focus, the glory of God, and we need to have the hope that that work is going to be meaningful and that it's going to be successful. That the Lord would establish the work of our hands. So what we have is the idea that there's expectation of benefit in this life. There's expectation that it works across generations. There's expectation that it will be accomplished. There's expectation that it will have reward that lasts. And he applies it even to this life in terms of the idea of getting a reward for work in this life. 
he who plows should plow in hope. And he also says this, he teaches us that if somebody gives spiritual blessings, they plow spiritually, they sow spiritually, they thresh spiritually, is it a great thing that they should plow, sow, or thresh materially? That there should be a reward materially? Which one's greater, the spiritual or the material? The spiritual. And so the material blessing, the material reward is lesser. It's lesser. Order of priority. There's an order of priority of who you should bless. Lawful officers who give more direct service as opposed to less direct service. From more foundational service to less foundational service. So you think about this. He talks about how, hey, I'm the one that came and planted this church and gave you the gospel. In addition to that, I'm a lawful officer. In addition to that, not only am I generally an officer that you owe honor to, but I've specifically served you. Right. So there's the foundational, there's the idea of the direct, and there's the idea of lawful. All of those things. So he's magnifying the degree to which they owe him the honor of an apostle that includes pay. Continuing on in verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Look what he's doing. He's taking from the ceremonial law and taking a principle and applying it in the New Covenant era again. Two ceremonial laws in like less than a paragraph. Now you go and talk to a Baptist, or you talk to... You know, somebody who wants to totally separate these things, you can give them a heart attack here. First Corinthians is great at showing the application of the Old Testament to the New Testament. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Now, what he's doing here is masterful. Okay? What he's doing right now is he's proving his point, but he's also setting up the spike on the idle argument. Because he's saying, look, I'm going to get a benefit of my service because those who partake in the altar partake in the food of the altar. And therefore, if you partake in the food of the altar, you're partaking in the altar. He doesn't say that part yet. He's going to get there later. But he's setting it up. So he's proving his current point and he's also setting up his next point. So Paul and Barnabas didn't use the real right that they have because of their care for the gospel and the brothers. Right? They're choosing to advance the gospel, not take pay. They're choosing to care for brothers and not take pay because they think, based upon the actual weakness and immaturity of these people, that if they do it, it would harm their witness. Because there's slander going around where somebody in Corinth is saying, these guys just want to take your money. Paul's going, okay, let me prove that wrong. I'm just going to not take your money. How about that? Does that prove that wrong? It didn't stop it. These other people keep rolling around, calling themselves apostles, and Paul mocks them as super apostles, right? The big S. Super apostles. Right? Paul's good at sarcasm. Like, really good. Super apostles. And so he mocks these guys because they're slandering Paul, so Paul keeps disproving the slander, and they just find another slander 
just grasping. And the Corinthians are so wise, 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 air quotes, wise, that they don't get it. And they keep going, you know, maybe this slander is right. Maybe this one's right. Like, you know, you think maybe just for a second that these people are slandering Paul because they hate Paul? Rather than kicking these people out, stop listening to them, removing them from office, telling them, hey, you're false apostles. And what do they do? They just keep tolerating these guys that are slandering Paul. So Paul's got to grab them Nehemiah style by the beard and keep telling them, what's wrong with you? Point 37. Those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple. Point 38. Those who serve at the altar partake of the things of the altar. This is leading to the showing that partaking of the offerings joins with the service. It's a transitive thing. It goes back and forth. 39. The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Verse 15. But I have used none of these things. Right? I'm Paul's saying, I'm giving up a real right. I told you Paul likes overkill. Nor have I written these things that should be done so to me. For it would be better for me to die than anyone should make my boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. Now, the last use of the gospel there is in reference to the gospel as the new covenant. Okay? He's talking about preaching of the gospel, and then he's talking about in the gospel, in the new covenant. Okay? He's a steward. The word steward is the idea of a household steward. So it's the one who's an administrator of the household. He's an administrator of the covenant of grace in the new covenant. And so he's going to not abuse his authority in the new covenant. And it, would it be an abuse for him to take food for his work? Didn't he just prove that it wouldn't be? That's right. But you know what he's doing? Because of all of the slander, he's avoiding even the appearance of sin, and he's refusing to take a legitimate right that he has. And what it's going to do is rebound upon him as greater blessing. So do you see how he's piling up the coal stack real big to pour on the people who are eating food dedicated to idols? Verse 19. He's talking about liberty from man in order to be a slave to God and to all men. What's your liberty for? You're free. I'm a free man too. I'm a free man. Calvinist, I'm a free man. God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which makes me free to be a slave to everybody. Makes me free to be a slave of Christ. That's, that's the freedom that we have. The freedom to be slaves. And that slavery is far better than the slavery to righteous, to sin. The slavery to righteousness is far better than the slavery to sin and to Satan. You're a slave to the one you serve. You're going to serve something. You want to serve your belly? You want to serve your appetites? You want to serve wickedness? You want to serve Satan? Or would you rather serve a master who gives better wages? You're going to be a slave to somebody. You're a slave to yourself. You're a bad God. You're real bad as a God. It doesn't work out. Verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, a servant to all, that I might win the more. 
And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law. Not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ. He's talking about there the idea of the... He's not abandoning the law of God. He's not abandoning the commandments of God. He's abandoning the old covenant ceremonies, and instead he has the new covenant ceremonies. It's the law of God transformed in Christ. The law of God in Christ. Law toward Christ. That I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. So people who actually have weakness of conscience, he's willing to be careful to not offend them by giving up rights. Giving up rights. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. This is used to justify every sort of lawlessness and wickedness, which is not the point of this text. If anybody was paying attention at all to the parenthetical, he says, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ. Right? This idea of being all things to all men could be so totally abused. The point is you can do lawful things. You can give up rights. That's the point. And he was allowed during this time. Let me read verse 23 first. Now this I do for the gospel's sake that I might be a partaker of it with you. The new covenant. So he's, the idea here, he's not saying that anybody forever can apply the old covenant. Right? Paul was free to apply the old covenant because it was still in the transitional period until Jerusalem was destroyed. Right? Until the temple was destroyed, he could offer sacrifices at the temple. He could go and do the Nazarite vow. He could do all that stuff. We're not free to do that now. Paul's not saying he was out the law toward God in Christ. He has the new covenant ceremonial law, the moral law, and he has the general equity of the civil law. He's saying he's without the ceremonial law, without the old covenant. So he regarded the consciences of the truly weak while seeking to serve them and help them to become strong. He's a partaker of a new covenant and he wants to partake of it with the saints in Corinth. Verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win it. And everyone who competes for the prize is self-controlled in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Right? He has hope, not uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. He knows who's, who he's fighting. He's not fighting imaginary opponents. He fights the flesh and the world and the devil. He knows who he's fighting. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. The disqualification he's worried about, he's been preaching about for a long time in 1 Corinthians, sexual immorality and food dedicated to idols. That's what he's concerned about in Corinth. The idea that we would worship our bellies and the idea that we would worship sexual pleasure. So chapter 10, the Old Testament examples of our, are for our advocation and our application. Chapter 10, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Okay, quick question for you. This baptism, did it include any babies? 
any babies at all in the entire nation of Israel at this time. Okay? People say there's no examples of baby baptisms in the New Testament. They're wrong. Paul is specifically saying this is the same baptism we have. Secondly, were they dunked? No, they were sprinkled. They were sprayed, missed off the Red Sea. Who was dunked? The bad guys. All ate in the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. You see the perishing? This is the perishing. It's about covenant meals and the misuse of them resulting in perishing. These people partook of these things and they did it wrongly. And so they died. God killed them. He scattered their bodies in the desert. That's what he did. Verse 6. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So what are they doing? What is Paul worried about? These people engaging in sexual immorality and these people engaging in eating illicit foods. And they think it's all okay. They think it's a thing to boast about that this guy is sleeping with his stepmom. They think it's a thing to boast about that these people are able to eat food dedicated to idols. They're antinomian. Paul is saying these laws apply to us. Verse 6. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us test Christ as some of them also tested and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Don't test God by breaking his law. And do not complain against God about his law. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. The ends of the ages, the end of the old covenant era. That's what it's being talked about. So we have old covenant example, the warning about idolatry, the example of eating and drinking and rising up to play, directly correlating to the problems at Corinth. These serve as an example for us for our admonition. We who are at the end of the age, we who are out of the old covenant and in the new. An admonition is a censure for fault. It's a reproof. It's a direction to stop and put off what is evil and to put on what is good. And that word is... Nuthesia, which is the root word for the word nuthetic counseling. Nuthetic counseling is counseling, sometimes called biblical counseling. Jay Adams, I have a lot of books by Jay Adams. If you want any books by Jay Adams, let me know. I'll give you some books. They're good. Find a lot of them on purpose. Nuthetic counseling is the idea of counseling by saying, you know what your basic problem is? You're bad. 
You know why things are miserable? Because you're bad. You know what you should stop doing? Bad things. You know how you do that? By stop thinking stupid things and start believing true things. And so the idea that counseling principally needs to be about admonition. It needs to be about what's the thing that's sin? What do you need to put off? What do you need to put on? And that that's kindness. That's kindness in counseling. Is when you tell people what's wrong and you tell them what they need to do. So nithetic counseling is this counseling through admonition. Now, Verse 12, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Hey, you remember back earlier on we talked about people who thought they had knowledge? He's getting back. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You think you know that idols are nothing? Therefore you can eat food dedicated to idols? No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. Look, this happened to the Israelites. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tested, tempted, beyond what you were able. But with the test, the temptation, will also make the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So we get to this idea of fleeing idolatry and eating food dedicated to idols is not an actual liberty. Verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. Whenever he says judge for yourselves, he's not saying, you know, I'm not speaking authoritatively. You do what you want to do. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, I've just made an argument for like three chapters. So why don't you think about this for just a minute? Do you think what I'm saying is accurate or not? That's what he means when he says judge for yourselves. He says it a couple times in 1 Corinthians. Liberal scholars take it, and they always make it meaningless. Especially when you get to parts about women. Okay, they go, oh, what he means is, if you want to, no. He means you're responsible, so judge, and judge rightly. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. So in other words, hey, there's a union that's formed when you eat covenantal meals. Verse 18. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. In other words, I don't want you to share with demons. I don't want you to be partakers with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Do you see how insane it is that overwhelmingly Protestant churches teach this text as being you can eat food dedicated to idols if you want to as long as it doesn't bother anybody's conscience. This is overwhelmingly what you will hear in Protestant and Reformed churches. And it is absurd. The Apostle Paul does not leave any room 
for that position. He says if you do eat food dedicated to idols, you are participating in sacrifices to demons. And then he gives us a warning that's straight out of the second commandment. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Right? The Lord is a jealous God. Second commandment. Are we stronger than he? Notice this is a mocking because they think they're strong. Oh, the weak brother's the problem? The weak brother's the problem? You're so strong? Great. Do you want to make Jesus jealous? Do you think you're stronger than Jesus? So if you take the Lord's Supper and you also take food dedicated to idols, you are committing spiritual adultery, you are cheating on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will provoke him to jealousy. So I have for you here the second commandment and the larger catechism on the second commandment with its proof texts. Page 9. Get to verse 23. The doxological focus and the regulated principle. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Remember he quoted that earlier? And he just proved a bunch of things that aren't lawful, didn't he? And he also proved things out of the ceremonial law, didn't he? And so he's showing us that there's the moral law, there's general equity of the civil law, and there are principles out of the ceremonial law that we are obligated to deal with as new covenant saints. That's the argument he's just made. And so what is he doing? He's coming back and mocking this common phrase from Corinth. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own but each one the other's well-being, right? You're going to take this lawful statement. How is it true? Well, all things are lawful for me in the sense that I'm free from the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, but I'm bound by the ceremonial law of the New Covenant, I'm bound by the general equity of the civil law, and I'm bound by the moral law. Things are not helpful, or James might say profitable. Those things are contrary to the doxological focus and to the regulated principle. Things that don't edify are contrary to the regulative principle and the command to love your neighbor to seek his good. Seeking the glory of God and the good of the neighbor is required. The law requires that, and things that are contrary to that are unlawful. And if we're not authorized to do a thing, it's unlawful. So not all things are lawful for me in any sense except for I'm totally free from the ceremonial law. Verse 25, eat whatever is sold in the market, asking no questions for conscience' sake, for the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience' sake. So in other words, this doesn't mean you need to go around doing like idolatry inspections. Was this food ever dedicated to idols? Was it ever in a chain of possession? It might have gone through some sort of idolatry process. This thing is dedicated to idols unless proven not. No, the principle is it's not dedicated to idols unless proven is. It's not dedicated to idols unless you get evidence presented to you that it is. Because the earth is the Lord's and all the fullness thereof. That's the 
starting place statutorily. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you, and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. How does that argument make any sense at all? If somebody says this is dedicated to idols, don't eat it. Why? Because if you eat it then, you're affirming their false claim. You refuse to eat it because you go, I'm not going to eat this thing. God owns everything. And if you're saying this is dedicated to the idol, I'm not going to eat it. Verse 29. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? Once somebody else proclaims, once somebody else proclaims that a thing is dedicated to an idol, or there's magic, or there's divination, one of those kinds of things, where you have this idolatry, this demonic power, this dedication to some sort of demonic thing, when that happens, you protest it by non-participation. You separate, you flee from idolatry. Not because the thing itself has been transmuted, not because of the fact that the thing itself has power, but because the proclamation is a covenantal matter. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? Your liberty is defined by the law of God, not the other person. But the law of God requires you to not eat in this situation. But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? The way this gets interpreted is this. People take these last three verses, okay? And so far, it seems abundantly obvious that Paul has taught that food dedicated to idols is sacrificed to demons. They try to nullify everything we just read, all the argumentation, and make it mean zero, nothing, by taking these three verses and making three chapters mean only these three verses and like five or six verses at the beginning of the chapter eight. Because we're going to take these like nine verses and ignore like 60-something verses and make them mean we can eat food dedicated to idols. Okay, so I'm going to admit these are the three hardest verses in the whole thing for me to deal with. Okay? But let me tell you what they don't mean. The opposite of everything the Apostle Paul just said. It doesn't mean that. Can we all agree? Doesn't mean the opposite of everything he just said. Okay, so let's work it out. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake. You go, see, it's not about you, it's about that other person. And then I say, conscience... Not your own, but that of the other. See, it's not about you, it's just about the other person. But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food of which I give thanks? See, the bad guy is the one who says I shouldn't have eaten the food dedicated to idols. They're blaspheming me, or they're speaking evil of me when I'm just giving thanks and eating this delicious food dedicated to Baal. Mm. Right? That's, that's what people say this means. That's a joke. That makes everything else Paul just said meaningless. Is it dedicated to idols or not? Is it dedicated to demons or not? Is it something Leviticus forbade of Gentiles? Is it something the council at Acts 15 forbade? Is it something that Jesus rebukes the churches in Revelation 2 about? Is it something that Paul is condemning or not? To take these verses and make the rest of it mean nothing is absurd. So they're difficult to deal with. They don't mean what they are popularly asserted to mean. 
They don't. They mean you have to worry about other people's perceptions and you have to worry about the profession that other people make. If somebody calls a thing dedicated to an idol, you've got to deal with it. That's what it means. And you know what? They don't define what your obligations are. They don't govern your conscience. Your conscience is free from the doctrines and commandments of men. But you are bound by the law of God. And the law of God plainly teaches Old Testament, New Testament repeatedly. Do not eat things dedicated to idols. But if I partake with thanks, verse 30, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Think about this. What if instead of saying the bad guys are the ones that condemn me for eating food dedicated to idols, what if instead it's saying, is it worth it to be slandered that you are an idol worshiper for this food? If you believe that you have the liberty to eat food dedicated to idols, is it worth it to have people slander you as an idol worshiper? I think it's a hypothetical question. It's meant to show, even if you're still not persuaded, don't throw away your reputation. Because there's the example of the guy eating in the temple before, right? Verse 31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, that therefore also makes it obvious that it's not saying that it's okay to eat food dedicated to idols. The argument doesn't follow. The way this is normally read is, if I partake with thanks, why am I slandered for the food over which I give thanks? I shouldn't be. Therefore, eat things that are dedicated to idols to the glory of God. How do we make sense of numbers? How do we make sense of the example of the sea? How do we make sense of all of the arguments he gave about demons with that? What he's telling us is not something that contradicts the line of argument he's been going through for three chapters. One last difficult line is not justification for eating anything. The conclusion is you need to do things that serve the doxological focus, that bless your neighbor, and that apply the regulated principle so that you don't do things without warrant. If you eat or drink, eat or drink things that you know you're authorized to eat. If you eat or drink, do it with the purpose of the glory of God and the good of your neighbor. If you eat or drink, do it with the whole set of things that we know we apply the law to. The regulated principle and the glory of God is the goal doing it with faith. Seek to avoid giving offense where possible, but always give offense when duty requires. Sometimes you have to offend Jews, pagans, and even the church to do your duty. But you need to avoid causing offense if you can without sinning for the sake of your witness the sake of the advance of the gospel. Use your freedom to serve others. Do not only seek to do what you want, what profits you immediately, but seek to save souls and seek to profit many. And this will give you the long-term largest profit. The verse 31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. And verse 1 of chapter 11, I think better fits here than it does in chapter 11. So I'm just going to read it to you. Imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. So, I'm open to comments, questions, and objections. Mr. Silva. Absolutely. So the ceremonial law is abrogated in the sense that it's changed, right? So when I think changes, the old one ends, right? Yes. So it's it's changed, and it's I think the language of First Corinthians is that it's transformed in Christ. Okay. So I would say we have ceremonies given by God, and those ceremonies are transformed, okay. and all of them are types and shadows in the Old Testament, and they all point to meaning and fulfillment in Christ. And so just as the old Sabbath is fulfilled in Christ and it's replaced with a change of ceremony and the maintenance of the moral law, we have the ending of the old Sabbaths and replacing it with the first day Sabbath, the Lord's Day. So that's a good example where we go, the moral law element of it is that we have one day in seven to rest. That continues. The day is a ceremonial matter. The old ceremony is fulfilled. That old ceremony had a type and shadow purpose. It pointed to something about Christ, and it pointed to something about what we are to do in terms of ceremonies that continue in the New Testament. And so we have the replacement ceremony of a first-day Sabbath. I think all the ceremonies do that. They all go into some new ceremony. Would you say there's some new ceremonies that absorb multiple ceremonies in the old law? Yes, some new ceremonies have absorbed multiple ceremonies. So we have all of the the four types of sacrifices, we need, to, we need to realize that when we take the Lord's Supper, we're remembering all of those types of sacrifices. And so we think about the communion that we have in the peace offering. We think about the sin offering, the forgiveness of sins. We think about um, you know, the burnt offering, how we're committed to holiness unto God when we take the Lord's Supper. And forgetting one. Peace. Sin. Burnt. What's the other one? Anybody remember the other one? The grain offering. The grain offering. The grain offering. Sorry. Which is a Thanksgiving offering. Okay, so we give thanks. The Eucharist. Thanksgiving. Sorry. All right. Sorry. Thank you. All right. Any other comments, questions, objections?